Welcome back to Talking Points, the podcast that shines a light on life in the performing arts. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. Today I'm speaking with the divine Danielle Rowe. Danny grew up in South Australia, and by 14 she had moved interstate to train under Marie Walton Marm. Within a year of that, she'd been accepted into the Australian Ballet School, and on graduation she was offered a position with the company. But the accolades didn't stop. Danny rose to principal artist, won the Telstra Ballet Dancer Award twice, and represented the Australian Ballet Company around the world from London to China. But in a move that defines this superstar's trajectory, she wanted more. She left Australia and moved to the US, joining Houston Ballet as a principal artist, before a year later she was offered a contract with the prestigious Netherlands Dance Theatre. In this wondrous conversation, Danny and I talk about her career across three continents, how she found choreography, about managing long-distance relationships, her want for a family, and ultimately how she became the first female artistic director of Oregon Ballet Theatre. Just quickly interrupting this episode to let you know that Season 3 of Talking Points is sponsored by Energetics. Energetics specialise in creating sustainable, world-class dancewear for the stars of tomorrow. Perform and feel your best at every stage of your dance journey in Energetics premium high-performance fabrics. Try them out with a 20% discount for all Talking Points listeners using the code DANIEL20 at the checkout. Shop their extensive range online at energetics.com.au or for our US listeners, it's energetics.com. T's and C's apply. Hello. (laughs) Probably the last time we saw each other was in a dance studio in the very late 90s. My gosh, it was. (laughs) And I was probably 14. Yeah, I think so. And oh I actually God. was giggling on in the car on the way. So this was at Marie Walton Marne, the studio mm-hmm. in Newcastle. Did you live with Mrs. Tate? I did. <laughs> with Mrs. Tate, the studio cleaner. Yeah, in a little house. She was great. <laughs> I can't believe my parents let me just jet off to Newcastle when I was 14. <laughs> I think that's actually where I really wanted to start because... You spent your early years in Adelaide. How at 14 did you convince your parents to jet off to Newcastle, which is sort of not geographically the most natural of moves, um, to study full-time under Marie? So Marie came to Adelaide and she taught some masterclasses and I attended and I just thought she was the most amazing teacher and she then reached out to, to my family and myself and offered me a, a scholarship to her ballet school. And at the time um, in Adelaide, I'd worked with some wonderful teachers, but I was kind of really hungry for more information. And I was kind of, you know, I was very tunnel visioned from a very young age, like so many of us mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that, that went into into full-time ballet training and so she asked me to to start at the beginning of the year and at the time I'd just turned like 14 and my mum said well 
when I'm a little bit older and I'm closer to to 15, then I can go. And I just nagged her. I nagged her every single day. She kind of caved and let me let me go at 14. I mean, as a mum yourself now, it must seem. I think it must have just been really, really, really annoying. Like my dream was to get into the Australian Ballet School. Mm-hmm. And she recognized that if she wanted to support me in getting to that school that maybe I needed some different training. So I think that was part of that decision. Wow. But yeah, tough. So tough. So you move in with <laughs> Mrs. Tate, as you said, the mm-hmm. studio cleaner. And so yeah. full-time dance training begins. Was ballet always the dream? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think earlier on, I loved musical theatre and Uh, I did tap and jazz and I sang and did all the things. I was a real kind of comp kid. Mm -hmm. And then at one stage, my teacher at the time said, I think it's about time you kind of really focus either on ballet or tap. So I chose ballet and she kind of recommended, (laughs) probably because my singing wasn't that great either, Um, (laughs) that maybe I veered towards ballet. And then, yeah. I just kind of kept at it and I think I just always wanted to just wanted to be at the Australian Ballet really. I remember we would turn up to the studio in our pajamas. Yeah, we would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of crazy. That's my memory as well, just such positive, you know. We just... were just sponges and mm. I think the hardest thing was doing my schooling at the same time by correspondence, I kind of resented that and kind of was loving my independence as well. Mm. (laughs) And so that year you're then accepted into the Australian Ballet and and then you move down to Melbourne. Mm -hmm. What was it like to join the Australian Ballet? Yeah, the school was intense and but again I was just so thrilled to be there Um, and I was surrounded by these incredibly talented dancers so I do remember feeling very intimidated do you Um, yeah but it was also being around that level of talent I I was very inspired by it and so it just made me work harder and do better and and so then you get accepted into the company. Is that the moment of I've made it? I mean, what is that feeling like? Uh, well, yeah, it's, I mean, I just remember bawling my eyes out because I was, again, didn't expect it. <laughs> but um, Did you not have an inkling at all, though, that maybe I might no. get a contract? Really? No, I was kind of... Um, bit of an underdog in my year, I guess you would say. I think I was lucky actually because there was a lot of people that left the Australian Ballet. So the intake from our year from the school was quite large and I was actually told that they weren't going to hire me and that it was because someone left, uh, another person left, that there was a gap and so they, that's I was just lucky. Oh gosh, but that's like shocking for confidence to be like you weren't. <laughs> you didn't really make it, but now there's a numbers game, so we can let you in. Yeah, yeah. 
I I do just remember feeling very relieved. Mm. I didn't have a plan B. I didn't, I knew I wanted to dance, but I didn't have the resources in that, like I couldn't afford to travel overseas and audition mm. overseas. And the Australian ballet had always been my goal. So it was hard for me to even fathom dancing anywhere else. So yeah, as soon as I joined, I just kind of, made the most of every moment and every second because I just knew how lucky I was. Wow. And it really is that I think often in the performing arts, it's a lot of the time it's a financial or numbers decision of Mm -hmm. whether somebody's in or out and it actually often doesn't speak to their talent or their hard work. If there's Mm -hmm. a spot, there's a spot. And if there isn't, you know, sorry. Yeah, timing is everything. And what was it like to finally, you know, I guess work as a professional dancer? What what is the difference or what sort of things would people not expect as a as in the difference? I I think the biggest difference is you are not dancing that much or not nearly as much as what you do when you're training. Really? So especially joining a ballet company as a quarter ballet member, there's a lot of standing around, (laughs) not (laughs) a huge amount of dancing. And so that's a huge adjustment. Um, It's an adjustment on your body, on your mind, on it plays with your emotions. It's difficult. And you go from a very protected and stimulating environment to managing yourself and trying to be seen and trying to stay in shape, the same shape as the way that you entered into the company. So I think that is, I mean, you're warned, but it's not until you truly experience it that you recognise how different it is. Mm. And do you mean just in terms of the standing around in that on the stage, you know, you're often, say, holding a rose in a line up the back? Yeah, yeah. Um, And just also your you're not first cast. You might be third or fourth and or an understudy. And so there's not necessarily the space in the studio to do and dance full out. So even if you are cast to do a dancing role, you can't necessarily rehearse as consistently and as full out as you would if you were in the school um, and training. Oh, so interesting to hear that. And I imagine in the school, especially you know, people who are naturally sort of at the top of the class are often cast, they're often the centre of attention, they've often, Mm -hmm. you know, been quite used to being, you know, in the spotlight, I guess. So yeah, I imagine that is a real adjustment for a lot of people. Yeah, but it's a good, it's a good kind of lesson, because you do have to manage your own career. Mm. No one's going to hold your hand through it. You have to make the choices for yourself. So I think it's as hard as it is, it's an important phase to to go through. You rose fairly quickly through the ranks though and, and were made principal I think within a sort of seven or eight years. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I think I was 25 or 26 when I got promoted to principal. Yeah. Wow. And was that the sort of again, that relief of, oh, I've made it, I've achieved that that rank. <laughs> oh, I don't I can't, I think I was just so blown away and thrilled. I remember 
feeling like a contestant on the price is right and like jumping up and down and not being able to like control my body because again it's not it wasn't ever something that I thought could happen and so it was such a surprise and I was just elated and it's wonderful to to have that recognition Mm. uh, with all the work and the pressure of carrying a show and all of that but I yeah it was it was just fun (laughs) it was really I find it so interesting that at no point it, it sounds from what I'm hearing that you're saying like no you had no expectation of of the possibility or um yeah well it's it's funny because I I mean I had those goals like I I would love but it was more like oh it'd be really lovely to be a principal it wasn't like I have to be a principal <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> like my mum reminds me sometimes that when I was little, I used to watch the Australian ballet videos. Um, you probably remember they had. Yes. Um, because, uh, Sleeping Beauty was my favourite. And I would watch it over and over again. And my mum would always ask me, oh, you know, do you want to be Aurora one day? Do you think you'd be Aurora? <laughs> she said that I would always answer like, oh, that might be too much. Like, I don't know if I could be Aurora, but I'd be happy with Lilac Fairy. <laughs> and that's like, I think that's just how I've always operated. Like I've never, I've always, I guess I've wanted to, but I've never truly entertained the, the idea of reaching those heights. Yeah. And like, I wonder if it's almost like a protective mechanism as well, because. I think it, so. <laughs> yes. And you know, you, you can't be hugely disappointed if you don't yeah. make it. I can be that lilac fairy. <laughs> and I guess I want to, I, I like to enjoy myself. So yeah, I guess in a way it is protecting, <laughs> protecting <laughs> and, and ensuring that I have fun along the way. Enjoying that journey rather than sort of the anxiousness about making that rank. And Mm -hmm. so you're a principal at the Australian Ballet for a few years and then you make a move with your, at the time, partner, now husband, Luke Ingham. What starts to agitate inside to think I'm going to move away from the company that has always been my dream? Uh, Yeah, it was an opportunity I had to dance with Morphosis, which is what was Christopher Wilden's touring company. And he asked me to be part of the company after working with me at the Australian Ballet. And so while I was still dancing with the Australian Ballet, David McAllister graciously enabled me to do both, stay with the Australian Ballet and tour with Morphosis. And so ah. I went to the States, went to New York and for the first time and wow. got to, you know, launch into rehearsals with this company that was made up of dancers from all over the, the world. And we just started building new pieces together and doing Chris's work And then we toured to um, Amsterdam and London. So it was this three-month life-changing experience. And then through that experience, I recognised how how much more there was (laughs) to experience. And just I loved the energy of 
the American style of dancing, there was a fearlessness there. They would just launch into things without necessarily worrying whether it's perfect or not. It was just, let's just see what happens. And that attempt was, I think that willingness to be vulnerable in that way kind of enabled the, I think the audience kind of bought into that. And it was a very, it was pretty awesome to witness, but then I I started to move differently just purely by being around them and just feeling the audience's response to that as well. Wow. I was like, oh, I want more of this. And so when I came back to the Australian Ballet, I just realized that I wanted to explore more and be around that all the time. (laughs) And yeah, so Stanton Welch had offered both Luke and myself positions at Houston Ballet and we took him up on that offer. And so what was it like to dance with Houston Ballet? I mean, so well known through Lee Shwing Singh and up until recently artistic director of the Queensland Ballet and his story and his connection with that company. Mm-hmm. What was it like to move there? Oh, it was, again, it was fun. Um, it was all new and some scary parts in that it's just a different culture. But the dancers, uh, like the Australian ballet, are so hardworking and so like open and just up for anything. We felt embraced immediately. It felt somewhat familiar as well as being feeling foreign. What what really um, inspired me being there was the the repertoire. There's such a range um, in Houston Ballet's rep, and even though I was I was only there. A year and a half but I felt like I did so many of the works that I've always wanted to do in that very short amount of time yeah it was exciting. <laughs> and are there other cultural differences that you notice between say an Australian company and an American company? Well <laughs> in an American company you are on a yearly contract um, and it is definitely not presumed that your contract will be renewed. So with that is this drive that American dancers have um, and I guess some this competitiveness that comes with it because they never know if their contract is going to wow. be renewed. So just for some context, that that does not occur in Australian or or for the most part in Australian companies and in European companies, even less so. They almost have contracts for life in, in life, Europe. Yeah. I'm, and I'm, I mean, when I was in Australia, we would be on yearly contracts, but there was this understanding that if, like, no one ever lost, you know, would lose their contract. Or if it, if it did happen, I wasn't aware. <laughs> yeah. There's sort of an understanding amongst most companies and dancers that short of there being a sort of huge financial change or you possibly doing something very, very terrible, (laughs) your contract will almost always be renewed, which I suppose comes with it a sense of security. Yeah, I think with that, 
concern, <laughs> worry, and need to impress. At least at Houston Ballet, when I was there, there's just this energy in the room that every rehearsal is means something and you commit 110% to every single rehearsal, which I enjoyed. I, I loved that energy. I didn't love where it came from. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I think maybe that has contributed I, to the style of dancing. Who knows? But it was something that I actually liked being around. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's like pros and cons. Because mm-hmm. uh, you're right. I, I imagine it does drive a certain energy and need to impress. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's driven from anxiety or, you know, the need to pay your rent, that's a tricky one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so after 18 months, mm-hmm. you again make another pretty courageous move. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was courageous or just it just happened. But <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I moved to um, the Netherlands and joined Netherlands Dance Theatre. Yeah. Why that company and where was your headspace in order to sort of even initiate contact or get an audition? How how did that come into your world? So going back to the Morphosis experience, during that process with the company, Paul Lightfoot, who became the director of NDT, mm-hmm. he was working with Morphosis and we got to got to know each other and he said that if you're ever interested in auditioning for NDT, please reach out. And so I remembered those words mm-hmm. and held on to them. Um, again, like NDT was always a company that I looked up to and just I followed religiously. Uh, I've always felt more comfortable in more contemporary works rather than traditional ballet. Did you really? And I think my favorite, my favorite time in the studio was when we were creating new works. I just felt so fulfilled and loved contributing, contributing to making something new. So I'd finished my time with Houston Ballet, or knew that I wanted to finish my time with Houston Ballet. I felt really content with the ballet work that I'd done. And I mm-hmm. think because I was able to do works that I'd always wanted to do in a very short amount of time at Houston, I recognized that I needed, I guess I needed a challenge. I wanted a challenge. I wanted to feel uncomfortable. I wanted to feel, to be in a space where I was dancing very differently. Mm-hmm. And so I reached out to Paul to see if I could audition. And he said, yes. And so I went over for a weekend and auditioned and then um, was offered a job. And at the same time, my husband, Luke, he auditioned for San Francisco Ballet. Like I'd always wanted to go to NDT. He'd always wanted to go to San Francisco Ballet. And within a week, we were both offered jobs at those companies. Oh, Um, gosh. (laughs) And we just thought, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to our dream companies. Yeah. Wow. So you move to the Netherlands and Luke moves to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because that's how relationships work is when you're on different continents. <laughs> <laughs> no. Not tricky at all. <laughs> Not tricky at all. No, we, 
it was a big decision yeah obviously but yeah um we both recognized that these opportunities wouldn't present themselves again so we had to embrace them Mm. and you were long-term partners at that point yeah yeah we'd been around each other enough so it was time for some space (laughs) (laughs) I sort of moment I mean I love that but I was more thinking you know so in an early relationship it's you know it's much more nerve-wracking to make a move oh yeah Yeah. you know (laughs) we felt secure enough in our relationship that the distance felt like we could manage it (laughs) (laughs) but also space is good (laughs) yeah I think we we'd grown up together we always had worked together our friendship circle was the same so we also recognized that it was time for us to perhaps like form our own identities and create a a network and a uh, and friendships that were our own as well. Wow! So you start in a contemporary dance company. I mean, there's not that many dancers who make that sort of. Possibly, audiences wouldn't realize the huge change that that means for a dancer's body and the type of movement. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a yeah, it was a huge shift. Yeah, using my body in such a different way and finding muscles that I didn't even know I had. And yeah, it was the first year in particular was really tough. I just didn't know who I was anymore. I'd come from an environment where I was a principal, which immediately, you know, you'd walk into the studio and you got to kind of choose how the rehearsal ran. You knew where you fit in the organization. And then coming into an environment where I really felt like I was relearning how to dance. So I felt like a newborn. (laughs) (laughs) Like I had to learn how to walk again. So, yeah, my ego took a bit of a hit, (laughs) which is good for me. It was so good. Because you're right, um, ballet companies have such clear hierarchy Mm -hmm. dictated really by rank. Mm -hmm. Is that the case in a contemporary company? No, it's more communal and it's about the work. It's not about you. Whatever you're doing is in service of the work, the piece. And so whatever you need to do to make that piece be the best it can be, even if it means just lying at the back of the the stage for 40 minutes. But and so so that was a shift um and but a good one that's a big shift really i just wondered if you missed the spotlight and not in a sort of ego way but possibly is it hard to move away yet still continue to dance oh no i didn't miss the spotlight at all actually i really um I guess what I missed was that clarity of knowing where I stood within the company and because it's kind of like nobody knew my past or anything like that. And so it's it's just like, oh, people are just recognising me right now mm. and where I'm at right now. So that was just more the the shift for me. But I loved going on stage and not having to carry a ballet 
<laughs> or feeling like I'm carrying the ballet and mm. everyone's watching to see how many turns I do. I felt like I eventually transformed as a dancer because there was no fear or no, I didn't feel that pressure. And it was just about dancing with my peers and dancing and making art, make, making a piece together. It wow. was liberating. <laughs> yeah. I've actually never heard anyone almost acknowledge that, that the that what comes with being a principal is carrying the ballet. But it's so true. I mean, you you know, many times, even myself, I will go to see a work because somebody is cast. Mm -hmm. And I guess the pressure that comes with that is not maybe always acknowledged. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that's something that you don't know or don't understand until you get to that rank. And then I've spoken to a lot of people that have become principals and they're so excited and it's so wonderful and you you have that accolade and then then it hits you and it's like six months later or a year later and you and I mean I've heard of dancers go through severe stage fright and depression and anxiety and all these things because you you feel like people have this expectation every time you enter onto the stage. Um, Wow. But I, I, I'm very glad that we're embracing sports psychology <laughs> and supporting <laughs> supporting ballet dancers in the same way as we do sports, our sports stars, because it, you know, it comes with similar pressures. Yeah. I mean, it's a long way from there, I think, still, but at least. We're acknowledging it. At least. Yeah. <laughs> it's at least being talked about, which I yeah. guess is the first step. Absolutely. And so what makes you decide to stop dancing? Oh, the main reason was I really wanted to have a family um, and I just didn't ever picture myself as the type of person that could manage dancing and being a, a parent as well. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the impetus. Like all I could think about was babies <laughs> <laughs> and then the husband being in the other continent <laughs> yeah I thought I might need to the same continent I guess I I really felt content I felt so content with the work that I'd done um the people that I'd had the opportunity to work with my body still felt healthy and I I guess also I wanted a little more <laughs> independence I didn't want to <laughs> in a company anymore I kind of wanted to choose my own adventure but I think really the impetus the main impetus was my desire to have a family and so you move back to San Francisco yeah well really that's your first move to San Francisco yeah yeah I mean yeah obviously I'd traveled there a lot but yeah I hadn't actually lived there so I moved in with my husband. <laughs> <laughs> An adjustment. What was it like to retire? It was oh, it was a roller coaster ride. I think well, I was just so happy to be with with Luke and I was happy to kind of not know what comes next. I really had no plan. And then I was lucky enough to get pregnant pretty quickly. <laughs> um, 
so then my focus just became being a mum. So it was very focused on my eldest daughter, Aggie, and I loved being in San Francisco. I think it was it was more as Aggie got older that I recognised that I would love to go back into the studio um, in some capacity. But, yeah, that time was mostly spent focused on becoming a mum and, and being with my my little girl. And so I just wondered, was the the kernel of choreography always sitting there at the back of your mind? No, I had never contemplated it. I really loved creating with choreographers, but I never thought that I would have anything interesting to say (laughs) as far (laughs) as choreography was concerned. I guess I, yeah, I was a little insecure about that, but I did dabble. I challenged myself just before I left NDT. Um, There's a program that NDT does every year called Switch and all the company members switch roles and take on marketing, uh, fundraising, costume design, everything, and they produce their own show. And the dancers also choreograph and the dancers dance as well. So I challenged myself just before leaving to create something because I knew it would make me really, really uncomfortable, but I knew that I wanted to at least try before I left. So I did. And then once I made that duet, I was like, okay, I did that. That's great. And I never (laughs) thought (laughs) choreograph again. Taking it on again was accidental, really, in that I was working with a project company um, called SF Danceworks, just helping out as a dancer sometimes and just helping out with logistics and things like that. And I was meant to be working with a choreographer and they were always late for rehearsals and were miss- they would miss rehearsals. And at the time I was like still breastfeeding and still like I was a full-time mum, part-time doing other stuff. <laughs> so timing matters for those not in that, that yeah. yeah. <laughs> you make the most of every single second. And so the, the person that I was meant to dance with, he suggested that I start choreographing something while we're waiting on him. So I was like, okay, like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll create a solo. And then my friend said to the director, so Danny's pretty much created a solo. Why don't we just have her choreograph the, the whole piece? And he agreed and he was like, you know what, I'd really love for you to make it into a duet. So I did. I created a duet and then that piece was performed as part of a gala that at the time would happen frequently in San Francisco and it was it would bring all the different companies from all over San Francisco all the different dance companies together for this gala event and it meant that everyone was there the whole dance community was there all the different directors were there wow so that duet was performed there and so other directors saw my work and then I was offered some other commissions from there And then 
another commission, another commission, and it just kind of kept growing from from that point onwards. But it wasn't intentional. (laughs) It just (laughs) kind of happened. And then I realized very quickly how much I loved choreographing and it fulfills me even more than than dancing did. Does it really? Yeah, yeah. I just love seeing dancers take this idea that I have in my head and run with it and transform it. It's like maybe it is ego-driven, but it's like the biggest compliment you could ever receive <laughs> to see dancers want to work on a little idea that you might have and I just yeah I love building building things with with dancers it's so yeah it's the best in February this year you became the artistic director of Oregon Ballet Theatre Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like you go to the greatest of heights in everything that you maybe didn't even turn your mind to. <laughs> but my goodness, congratulations. It's just... Uh, I'm just feeling very humbled. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, I mean, you're their first permanent female director. Mm-hmm. And what's it like to become an artistic director? Is it nerve wracking? And, and how did you, how did you come to take that on? Yeah. How does it feel? You know, it feels different every single day. No two days are the same. And I think that's what I'm learning to love about this position. Uh, you just cannot predict. I love planning. I love organizing. So I can do that as, you know, till the cows come home. But when you're managing and working with human beings and artists that everybody has their own world and their own needs and and you just cannot predict what you're going to, going to be presented with each day. But I also adore that. I adore that I just don't know what's coming and I just hope that I work with these new scenarios with compassion and with um, empathy and that I can bring out the best in the dances that I that I have here at OBT. They're just wonderful human beings. I, I feel I feel honored to be trusted in this position. But how it came to be, well, I never again, <laughs> never thought that I would be an artistic director, wasn't on the agenda. And then I worked with OBT as a choreographer and I fell in love with the dancers and Portland is a really special city. It actually reminds me a lot of Melbourne. So I feel very at home Mm. here. Um, There's really good coffee and really good food. So that helps. And it's just geographically, it's just beautiful. And Luke and I, have always said, oh, we're going to move to to Portland one day. So when the job came up, after recognizing how much I wanted to work with the dancers more, and also I was at this stage in my choreographic career where I had this desire to have a more consistent group of dancers to work with, and knowing that we both love Portland, I thought I'd apply. And yeah. Wow. 
I mean, it's just speaks so highly of you and, you know, all of the, I suppose, risks and courageous moves that you've made. What are you hoping to bring to Portland and I suppose more broadly to the Oregon community? I I don't necessarily want to bring anything more. I guess I just want to bring out the best in what we have right now. I'm really I'm not making any bold claims of growth or taking on repertoire that's insanely out of our reach financially or anything like that. Mm-hmm. What makes Portland really kind of unique, um, at least within the, the states, is that people here just do their own thing and they just try and be really good at their own thing. They're not looking around trying to compete or compare and they place value in the building blocks, the process. Um, They're not product driven, they're process driven. And so I want to take that philosophy into everything that we do here at OBT and I think taking, I guess, elements of what I've learned throughout my career and also the network that I have, bringing elements of contemporary and classical and and hopefully creating a, a rep that celebrates all of those beautiful aspects of the different styles of dance, but really just looking at how we build works and building with integrity Um, And then naturally the product will be of a high quality and interesting and innovative and all those buzzwords that people use. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, it already is a company that I think Oregon's very proud of and I would just want to elevate it. Wow. Well, I think Oregon is just so lucky to have you and um, just huge congratulations. And we just, you know, I can't wait to see how the company evolves and um yeah it's just been so wonderful to speak with you today oh you too claudia you're amazing in everything that you've done as well now now i want to interview you (laughs) thank you so much for having me and oh it's just been so wonderful to reconnect and um yeah we'll be watching from afar awesome thank you thanks Danny is now based in Portland, Oregon, leading the Oregon Ballet Theatre through their first season under her directorship. For tickets, head to oregon.ballet.theatre on Instagram or obt.org. And to follow all of Danny's adventures, you can find her on Instagram at underscore Danny Rowe underscore. Danny and I recorded our conversation remotely with Danny dialing in from Oregon on the west coast of the USA. The podcast was recorded and edited on the lands of the Awabakal and Gadigal peoples to whom we pay our greatest respects. Talking Points is produced by Fjord Review. Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes as soon as they're released. And if you like us, please leave a five-star review. On the next episode of Talking Points, you'll hear from Sean Parker. Why did I keep going if it was so hard? I just really loved it. It was like a calling. And I just did a, a double pirouette. I'd just seen it. And my sister said, well, you just did a double pirouette. That's really hard. And she went and told the ballet teachers. Then they they hunted me down in the local cinema because word had got around. Sean Parker did a double pirouette. 
Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson, with additional production by Penelope Ford and Clint Topic. Sound production and editing is by Martin Peralta at Output Media. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com.